KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Flashpoint, shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and this week on Flashpoint, the generational wealth gap. So you're talking about a trillion dollar anchor around the neck of young people. And how do you expand into the economy as for investments? And how the pandemic has affected it. The pandemic wiped out anywhere an estimated 40 to 50 percent of small businesses, particularly black and brown businesses. A woman using pop culture to teach about wills and estate planning. People can kind of connect with movies and scenes and they can laugh at it, but then they can walk away and say, she has a point. And we highlight a North Philly native working to end poverty by making money management skills more accessible to youth. I don't have children, but it's like, I want to leave something behind. It's a half hour you need to hear straight ahead on Flashpoint. I'm KYW's Antoinette Lee, and welcome back to Flashpoint, where this week we're discussing the generational wealth gap. Now, we know that the pandemic has exacerbated some issues, including wealth inequality. Here to discuss on Flashpoint with us, we have Dr. Ken Scott. He is president and CEO of Beach Companies. We also have John Childress. He is president of the Black Business Leadership Coalition of Greater Philadelphia. Ken and John, thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. So first of all, let's talk about what the generational wealth gap is and how it plays a role in the work that each of you do. Ken, we'll start with you. Generational wealth gap, obviously the the one big cause of all of this is student loan debt. I mean, you know, it's really that that simple. I mean, you know, you're talking about a trillion dollar anchor around the neck of young people. You know, matter of fact, a quick story, I had an intern and told me that she was going into the Peace Corps. And she said, oh, Dr. Scott, they're gonna help me pay off my loans. I'm going into the Peace Corps. And I was like, oh, how much do you owe in student loan debt? And uh, she owed $220,000, 220,000. And uh, so of course that's one of the biggest concerns that you really have, I mean, as far as most young people today is that that student loan debt and then how do you expand into the economy as far as buying a home and and other investments and um, really holding you back. Yeah, I would definitely echo what Dr. Scott said. Unfortunately, these students, when they graduate, they have a mortgage without the house. The other part of the challenge is the fact that there are not tons of corporations just hiring college grads. And I think if you look at the college graduates of the last five to 10 years, you would be shocked at how many of them are not working in the field of their major. You know, so that's an issue. So then you look at it and you say, okay, well, what about entrepreneurship? Well, you know, both Dr. Scott and I love entrepreneurship and promoting entrepreneurs, but the pandemic wiped out anywhere an estimated 40 to 50% of small businesses, particularly black and brown businesses. So when you look at it from that standpoint, you don't have the revenue. And then you look at on the expense side that your expenses are much higher, not just for colleges, but also even for homes. You know, look at the, how home prices have skyrocketed. So if you, if you can't afford your home, you have to pay this college debt and you don't have a steady revenue stream, that creates a generational gap. The city is set to receive $1.4 billion in funding as part of the American Rescue Plan. And John, your organization wants a $10 million to be funneled into Black-owned-led projects. Why? So when you look at what is going to make a difference, the traditional way of going to majority and government-owned entities and asking them for a larger slice of the pie for black business has not produced the results that we wanna see. That's the bottom line. I mean, 15 years ago, I was executive director of the African-American Chamber of Commerce. 
And when you look at the numbers from then to today, we have lost ground in many areas for black business. So we say, okay, we have to go about this a different way. Simply continuing to do what we've been doing is gonna produce the same underachieving results. So we looked at it and said, what are some ways that we can make you know, this turnaround and really make it happen? Last year, the city of Philadelphia spent $80 million on black owned businesses from city agencies discretionary spending. At the Philadelphia Navy Yard, a black co-developer, Mosaic Development Part Partners, is the co-developer of the Philadelphia Navy Yard, which is a $2.6 billion project. They have committed to over 45% of that business going to black and brown businesses. That represents over $100 million a year for 10 years. So for a decade, they can double the city spend. And that's just one project. There's also the Hillco project where the refinery was. There's Penn's Landing coming up. So just think if you put together four or five of those projects, you could add half a billion dollars coming into Black businesses and Black economies. That's what's going to make a significant difference. When we own the projects and when we lead the projects, that is when you're going to see Black employer firms grow. You're going to see people hired and wealth returning to our community. Ken, I know that you've been working really hard over the pandemic to secure PPP funding for Black mm -hmm. business owners' rights. So uh, for those who don't know, tell us what Beach Companies is and what you do. Beach Companies is a series. We're really a social enterprise, so we're mainly formed of nonprofit organizations. Uh, one is a community development financial institution. Another of our parent organizations does real estate development, a lot of affordable housing, and other we own over a half a million square feet of commercial space and schools and educational facilities. Um, we also have a foundation that gives grants and scholarships out to community organizations and students. We also have technology uh, organization. But over the 30 years, our 31st year, we've um, hired well over 6,000 people that we've developed employment for. We've leveraged about $2 billion in community investment. We've given millions of dollars in grants, scholarships out to people. I'm just very uh, proud of what we've been able to do and establish around in community redevelopment. Many Black businesses have been struggling during this pandemic. Startup Black businesses are seemingly growing right now. How do we explain that trend? You know, I'd be interested to see some of the numbers in more detail. There is a lot of them. A startup can look at the landscape, the entire economy, and see what areas are strong and growing for the next decade. See, one of the things that we don't do enough is position ourselves ahead of the curve, right? Instead, we look to see what is successful. Oh, now how can we do that? And to give you an example about that, I'll tell you about Wayne Gretzky. So Wayne Gretzky is generally considered the greatest hockey player that ever played. There were many hockey players that were much faster than him, stronger than him, but he always seemed to beat them to the puck. So they asked him one day, they said, Wayne, how is it that you get to the puck before all these guys who are faster than you? He said, it's very simple. They skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going, right? And so that's what we need to transform our Black businesses is starting to look and saying, well, what is going to be big over the next 10, 20 years? biotech, life sciences, IT, right? And we need to say, how do we get excellent in those areas to move ahead? So as a startup, you have that opportunity. An existing business has been doing business a certain way for so many years, and it's hard to tell them to, to change to what they've been doing. Look, when you, when you wanna see a movie tonight, are you gonna go to Blockbuster to get your movie? Nope, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we get stuck in that because we've done it and we made money doing it. And it actually comes, it, it becomes a change for us, which 
hold us in areas which aren't as strong as they used to be. So the newer startups have the opportunity provided they have the funding and the leadership and the technical expertise to excel. So I want to give you both a shot at this question. Um, What are the biggest challenges that Black businesses are facing today? To me, there's no greater challenge than mindset, changing the mindset. And that includes changing the mindset of us as Black business owners and changing the mindset of the community and society at large. We have been so accustomed to taking less or being less that until we change that belief, we'll never get more. There's a condition in Philadelphia, I call it economic apartheid, where 17% of the population of Philadelphia, which are white males, own about 80% of the wealth and the contracts and what's going on. And we would be happy with just a 1% change in that, despite being 43.6% of the population. That is totally unacceptable. You know, there are, there's a lot of different things we can talk about in terms of technical assistance, getting better technical assistance, funding for businesses, and all of that is important. But until we believe that we can be great, we won't be great. You know, we have to understand that we have to go out here and earn this business. No one's given it to us. There's no more handouts. There's no more set-asides for us. If we want that business, we have to be the absolute best. We have to go take it. Yeah, I, I agree with John 100%. I, I say that all the time. I mean, it, it, you know, it does start with the mindset. And just because there's always obstacles in the way, but it's like, okay, so what? We're going to move forward anyway. You know, but one of the great sayings that uh, I have these little slogans around is that, you know, some people only see problems, but smart people see opportunities. So since the racial reckoning from the past year, there's been a lot of talk about economic justice. What does economic justice look like for Philly? Economic justice for Philadelphia means that a Black family will have the same opportunity to own a home, to put their kids through college, to create savings, to build generational wealth that they can pass down that a white family does or an Asian family does. That's what economic justice means. We have to create wealth building strategies. We've been through the cycle of the first, you know, the first black person to get this job and that job. And, and we're in, oh, welcome to corporate America. You've made a little bit of money. That didn't translate to generational wealth. You know, when we had generational wealth was when we had ownership of things. Economic justice means that we have the opportunity to earn, you know, and the last point I'll say is I have this debate with a lot of black activists who are like, well, the United Nations says that we should get reparations and this and this and this. I said, well, they can say it all they want to. They don't control the United States Treasury, right? So we have to develop the plan to build up our own wealth. And we just need these things that have been blocking us to stop blocking us. And, you know, right now, for example, we have an opportunity in this state. The state of Pennsylvania has a $10 billion surplus this year, $7 billion from the, from the uh, Biden ARP mm-hmm. funds, $3 billion from the budget surplus. And we're not doing anything with it. That is an opportunity. You talk about economic justice. We're not asking for new money. This is money you have sitting there. Why don't we spend several billion of that, but not on programs, but on investments, which can create revenue and can create generational wealth for us? Because it's clear we have disinvested the Black community for decades. There's no question about it. So this is an opportunity for us to invest in the Black community to create generational wealth, and we're not taking advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, and I, and I would say, you know, you, you can't take away the history that the 
the United States government at every stage where we've had opportunities in the past to grow, to have economic justice has stood in the way, has actually put in law. So if we go back, you know, to the days of reconstruction, here we're moving along black people and what happens, you know, we get knocked off the rails because of, um, you know, laws that were put in place to block us, right? And to say, oh, by the way, you're going to be less than. We had the Freedmen's Bank. You know how much money went to the Freedmen's Bank? I mean, they would have had billions of dollars to invest in black businesses and, and home ownership and all these other things. Again, white people had control over it. Okay, that, that got defunct. But again, here's a you know opportunity after opportunity. It's like, oh, you can put your money into the bank. You know, I know a lot of this being a community development financial institution. So back then, yeah, black people could put their money in certain banks. They'll take your, your money for savings, but they weren't going to give you a loan to purchase a home. And again, the government was okay with that. I mean, redlining comes from really, you know, government practices saying, hey, this was okay to exclude those people. And then you look at the 70s. Oh, here comes affirmative action. You know, we're going to get our piece of the pie and, you know, here's some reparations for you that we're going to set aside percentages for, for jobs and school and, and financing. Oh, sorry, 10 years later, here come the Reagan era. Sorry, nope, that's reverse discrimination. We're going to wipe all of that out which we're facing today. Soon as today, now they're saying, oh, we're going to take care of historically disadvantaged. Each just supplied a, um, we had the small business grant program. So we work with um, other CDFIs across the state. We had $200 million, $100 million went to historically disadvantaged businesses. That was great. First time in history that we know of that $100 million went to these businesses. But as you can see what's going on now, there's been lawsuits in Texas and some of the other places already saying money that was set aside that was going to go to disadvantaged people in, for, in the restaurant industries and some of the other places. They've already, you know, the courts have already tried to roll those back because people are following, um, you know, saying reverse discrimination. These are longstanding patterns of, of inequality, right? You know, yes, this is, what you're saying is this happens over and over again. I mean, is this the chance for America to get it right this time, though? It is an opportunity that's slipping through our fingers unless we act very, very quickly. And the reason why I say it, it's slipping, it's slipping through our fingers is because we need to start with what are the outcomes that we want out of this, right? And only accept these outcomes which are moving our people forward. So if we don't do that, then what happens instead is we get token gestures, right? Juneteenth, it's a holiday. That's nice. It didn't come with any money attached. So, oh, you can take a day off. That's fine. How is that moving us forward? Instead, we should look at it from this perspective. Over the last 18 months, roughly six to seven trillion dollars has been injected into the United States and various parts of the economy. How much of that went to black projects that could generate wealth and could really promote our businesses? That's the only measuring stick we should use when we're looking at these opportunities. And I want to wrap us up with this question. As our city and country are on the road to economic recovery, what should minority communities be doing to make sure that we're not left out of the recovery conversations? Uh, so, yeah, I would say uh, to make sure that we're not left out, obviously, is to, one, don't fall asleep. I mean, you know, there's there, there are opportunities out there and we have to jump on them first. We know we really have to pay attention, not wait for someone to come to us for the opportunity, but to, you know, kind of look down the road into the future and say, OK, what are those opportunities like you mentioned earlier with some of the young people? And, and then take those seeds from the government. There are you no know, various programs. And, you know, this administration has compared to the last where there's plenty of opportunity here. They are putting some dollars out there that you can actually use to propel yourself. Last chance uh, to dance, John. So two things really are critical to me. One is measurement and the other is accountability. You know, we have to measure our progress and hold everyone accountable for it. Best efforts don't cut it. We need results. So we need to have clear, 
challenging but obtainable results. Well, our initiative uh, that we have at the Black Business Leadership Coalition is working in partnership with our partner, the NIC, the National Institute for Inclusive Competitiveness. One of the key initiatives we have is to drive and create a regional strategic plan to promote Black business and Black wealth. And we want to hold people accountable for achieving it. The time is right now to make these strategic changes to bring about the Black wealth and prosperity that we should have in Philadelphia. John and Ken, thank you so much for being here on Flashpoint with us. Thank you. Thank you for helping. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint, where this week we're talking all things generational wealth. This week's newsmaker is Tracy Gordon, the city of Philadelphia's Register of Wills, who's making lessons in estate planning more accessible to everyone. KYW Sherrod A. Howard spoke with Ms. Gordon about why these lessons are so important. Welcome, Madam Registrar. Now, the work you've been doing as Philadelphia's Register of Wills is getting a lot of attention because you found a creative way to educate families on the importance of estate planning and the transfer of generational wealth in your office's new online video series. And you do this all by using Hollywood films and taking the focus off of death and shining a light on personal accountability during life. So it's called The Register Reacts and we are on all social media pages. We are on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok. So together with your team, you found a unique way to speak to Philadelphians one-on-one. I've always disseminated information prior to being a Register of Wills. I was a community activist and an organizer. I just feel that when people know better, they do better. And people are really receptive when you try to teach them and don't try to overtalk them or, you know, make it so difficult. And so this is just the same thing. It's just a different topic, a most important topic, a most uncomfortable topic, because you're talking about death and you're talking about inheritance and you're talking about things that people don't want to talk about because most people don't want to talk about when they die. And estate planning is something that they should talk about just like they talk about when they get married or when they take their first confirmation. It is a rite of passage. And it's just the time that you are your most sorrowful. Your mother died. Your grandmother died. Your grandfather died. And the last thing you're thinking about is business. And that's why I wanted to make it more creative with the Register Reacts so people can kind of connect with movies and scenes and they can laugh at it but then they can walk away and say, she has a point. My job is to oversee or administrate and protect people's generational wealth. But I see the flip side when they don't. So I see all the consequences when you don't make a will. So I'm taking on that duty of educator. So I'm trying to help people protect their generational wealth. Unfortunately, COVID came. So I had to be very creative about my outreach. As an outreach, as a community activist, we're normally going out to people. I had to figure out how to do it and get people to come on Facebook and log in on Instagram and not just scroll past. So we had to be like kind of loud with it. Historically, in black and brown communities, there have been barriers put up, systemic, institutional, and even cultural, making accumulating generational wealth difficult. And you say in your personal experience as a woman of color and an educated person in the field that estate planning is vital to transferring generational wealth. It affects us more because most of us only have that one row house. 
People always think that when you make a will, you have to be rich. No, you can make a will because your photographs are important. Your jewelry is important. Clothing is important. And people don't understand or realize because you're dead, you don't understand it. The fights that go on. I mean, literally, I have, you know, some constituents when they come in here, they actually bring in criminal background histories of their siblings. They're not speaking, they're fighting. And it gets really messy simply when the person that died, the testator, could just simply say, this is what I want done. People don't realize that just because you're dead, they think it's over. I'll be going. That's the favorite. I'll be long going. No. It's still closure that you have to do in the state of Pennsylvania. And that's called making a will, probating it, because in order for them to be able to get your assets, they have to come and improve that they're heir. And so why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Why wouldn't you understand or know that if I make the will, I'm still the boss even in the ground? In particular, women of color stand to lose out the most because historically they're the caretakers while they're also on average making less than their male and white counterparts but they're taking care of their sick and ailing mother their aging husband not to mention their grandchildren so if the mistake of not making the will is made it's more devastating to that family so if you're rich and you make that mistake you can hire lawyers to fix it if you're just single african-american woman and no one has ever taught you there are rules in the state constitution that explains to you how to transfer generational wealth. And that rule is to make a will. Many of the cases that come up, particularly the ones without the wills, are women of color. And the sad thing about it is women of color, particularly in Philadelphia, are heads of the household. And so when they don't have this financial information, it impacts their entire family because they are the decision makers, they are the caretakers, and a lot of times this adversely affects them because when Big Mama dies, normally the person that was taking care of Big Mama was another Big Mama. The aunt, the sister, the sibling, and they're the ones that's conducting all the business. And so I really want to get them to start listening to this. We are natural nourishers, but when it comes down to the business, we are financially behind. The consequences when you don't make wills is more devastating to people of color than people who aren't. And you say this is basic education. These things should be taught early in life. Why isn't this taught in school? And I'm not just saying college. I'm talking about elementary school, middle school, and high school because they inherit things too. They're orphans as well. Some of their parents or grandparents or whoever their custodians may die before they get of age. And they need to understand that, hey, so when I'm 18, I'm getting ready to inherit this. Shouldn't they be educated on, hey, listen, you can inherit this stuff and you can blow the money, which I see, or you can inherit it and be smart about it. I think as the Registry of Wills, it is my duty to inform the citizens of Philadelphia how to conduct business. Okay, now millennials and Zoomers, you say this video series is also about starting this difficult conversation with them, not just about the baby boomers. It's about getting everyone on the good foot. Within the next 20 to 25 years, $68 trillion of assets is going to transfer from the baby boomers down to the millennials you're just talking about. So one, the baby boomers need to get their business together so their millennial heirs won't have the difficulty and go through the confusion. And then two, I have to teach the millennials to understand when you do inherit these assets, then you need to make a will. And the registry reacts. Everybody looks at TV. Everybody looks at movies. Everybody knows Boys in the Hood. Everybody knows um, uh, Game of Thrones. And that should get all generations listening. It, It needs to become a conversation. 
Shara. It needs to. It's not, it's like almost taboo. Somewhere the cycle has to be broken and somewhere the connect has to be there. And you said movies like Soul Food and Boys in the Hood are great examples of real life problems and things that you run into when people pass away. The real life situations that hits them better. You don't want to make the decision. I don't want to make any difference amongst our children. But you know, there's one kid you might not want to leave the executor because they're messy. And then there's another kid that's about the business, and that kid might be the baby. If you look at Soul Food, it's a great example because you see the fighting that went on. I give them real life examples of what's going on on a daily basis here in my office. Now that leads me to the issue of Tangled Titles. Can you explain to everybody what they are and how they're deepening the issue of poverty in Philly? Tangled Title is when a person may have some legal interest in a property, but it's still in a dead person's name. For example, your mother owned a house. The deed is in her name. She dies without a will. You think it's your house, but it's not. It's still in the dead person's name. Because we have all these tangled titles, 17,000 of them, which means people are living in houses that are still in dead people's names, I see it as a crisis. I need them to get out of these tangled titles because they can't do anything legal. You can't buy insurance for the house. You can't sell the house. You can't pass the house down. Avoid homelessness and come out of poverty and pass down the generational wealth. It's dead capital sitting all around the city to the tune of 17,000 with a potential to go up. As the register of wills, what do Philadelphians need to know right now? The number one thing that you can do right now if you have an asset is to make a will. Even if you take a piece of paper and write down all your assets and write down on the other side who those assets are gonna go to, date it and sign your name until you can get to an attorney so you can get the proper legal advice. Do your family a favor, do yourself a favor, do your generational wealth a favor. And just to recap, the six-part series Register React starts in July on all the office's social media channels. Thank you so much for coming. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Antoinette Lee, and this week's changemaker is Crystal Evans. She's the creator of Money Talks Education. It's a nonprofit working to end poverty by teaching youth financial literacy skills. Now, Crystal, she has an amazing story. She grew up in North Philly right on Girard Avenue. In 2009, she was actually homeless, so she understands the implications of missing out on education surrounding money management. I never got the lessons, and no one ever taught me about money. It's like there's so much that I don't know about managing money. The turning point for Crystal was when she started cleaning houses for money. Eventually, that blossomed into a thriving business with a team of people who clean corridors around Philly. It's called Bubbles, Bubbles, Bubbles. Started it in 2009. I created a lot of jobs through the janitorial service, and I also became a member of the National Small Business Association, and every year I would go to the White House. i get the chance to network, and they would set up conferences for me to meet with local representatives. The first time Crystal even heard the word financial literacy, she was in 
in a room with then President Barack Obama. So I raised my hand and I'm like, okay, what can I take back to my community? I said, we don't know how to build wealth. We don't know how to create wealth. What can I take back? And it was the first time that I heard financial literacy. I didn't know what financial literacy was, never heard of it. She began to do the research. She learned that other people in her community were also not talking about money and frankly, not learning the skill sets to manage it or build wealth. So she figured that was a way she could help improve her community. I decided to go to school. I got an associate's degree in accounting, a bunch of certificates in uh, business finance. And then I've worked a amongst some some people who are very successful that mentored me as well. Now she's a licensed financial advisor. She takes her financial literacy lessons to classrooms and recreation centers all around the city. She's also helped co-author a curriculum book which introduces teenagers to personal finance. Road to Riches. It is a newly published curriculum. It's available at Walmart, Target, Amazon. We've published it globally. Cool, cool part to not just having the, the curriculum is that we have an app that has a gamification feature to it, which highlights the book and it allows the kids to engage in healthy competition amongst peers, cohorts. It can be schools competing against one another. So Crystal opened up to me about losing her younger brother to gun violence in 2014. And she says that's part of what motivates her. Losing someone to gun violence isn't an easy thing. That's something you live with for the rest of your life. So for me, it's a part of the healing. For her, financial literacy is a solution to poverty and the other issues it intersects with. She has a plan in the works for a citywide financial literacy competition to help educate underserved families on building generational wealth. I don't have children, but it's like I want to leave something behind. You can learn more at moneytalks.education or find them on Instagram at moneytalks.edu. That's it for this week's Flashpoint. If you know a changemaker we should highlight next, let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Flashpoint Show. I want to wrap us up with this quote. Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. The show was produced by RN Vulture, Sharon A. Howard, and me, your host, Antoinette Lee. Until next time, thanks for listening. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.